You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journey here at UVic. All right, welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host today, Liz MacArthur, and my guest on this episode is Adele Barkley. She is a PhD candidate in the English department at UVic. Welcome, Adele. Thanks for being here. Hello, Liz. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you are a PhD candidate in the English department, but that can mean a lot of things. Maybe you can give us an idea of what uh, specifically your studies include. Well, my area of specialty is 20th century American poetry, and I'm currently researching um, mid-20th century American poets and the visual arts. It sounds like a pretty broad, or sounds like a lot. (laughs) Yes. uh, Well, I'm currently writing my comprehensive exams, which are these large and broad exams where you study everything in the field so you get a good grounding in it before you go on to the dissertation, which is a lot more specific, and that's uh, sort of to get you thinking about all the different research questions that are out there, all the different authors that are out there, all the um, criticism that's out there before you find your own original contribution. So I'm, I've taken a lot of steps back, but I think my way forward, um, I'd like to look at feminist ekphrasis in American women's poetry. Um, if that makes any sense. Okay. Uh, so the show <laughs> or I can clarify. <laughs> yes, the show is called Beyond the Jargon, so you have to clarify that. Okay, so ekphrasis is a type of poetry in which um, the poet often describes visual representations, so a painting, or even, you know, in the 20th century, we have a lot of poems about films. So the poem is a representation of a visual representation. Um, so a lot of looking and a lot of words trying to suss out what happens when we look at art and when we look at things. And so I think um, it'd be interesting to look at it in a feminist context because we have this long history of ekphrasis, you know, from Homer to John Ashbery. Um, But there's also a lot of research on women in film and how women look at film and look at paintings. And so for me, the next step is then to look at poetry and how we can negotiate... um, ways of looking at things so from way, a feminist perce- perspective, perhaps. Oh, so are you looking at um, poetry that's talking about, or that it, it's... So how... I don't I don't really understand. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's poetry that would be talking about how feminists are depicted in a visual representation? Um, not, no, more just... Um, not quite. More just... Um, so poems that are about art, visual art. And you sort of have the looker and the object, so mm-hmm. subject and object, and there's a relationship there, and usually that's typified as, like, a male-female relationship. So the artist as male and the, you know, muse or nude as this uh, feminine object to be looked at, to then be written about. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting what happens, you know, in the 20th century when poets like, uh, for example, Adrian Rich take up this mode of poetic writing, so writing about visual representations and being sensitive to the fact that there is that um, inherent dynamic and relationship um, that is gendered. So, you know, what happens when women write about women as objects, or hmm. is there a way to renegotiate the, the relationship? Interesting. Can you give us... Um an example or a particular example that you like about about this kind of poetry that's talking about uh, visual representations. 
this is interesting because this is a poem written by Robert Duncan, who was a poet from the San Francisco Renaissance, which was just this wonderful um, explosion of poetry um, in the San Francisco area, area in the mid-20th century. And he wrote a poem called The Maiden, and it's about the poet Marianne Moore. Um, who is a modernist poet, um, so an older generation of poet. And the way he describes her is through a lot of visual language. So in the poem, he places her in a lot of frames. So he describes a photograph of Marianne Moore and her static face looking back at him. Mm-hmm. He also associates her with this like lineage of women in paintings and nudes in paintings and um, models who have served as um, inspiration for uh, a lot of male artists. And so it's really interesting because then he's trying to engage with um, one of his influences, but he puts her in a frame in Hmm. this poem and trying to suss out the relationship to that um, between the the two poets. Um, Because on the surface, it appears as though he's falling into that relationship of a male artist looking at female object. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of really interesting dynamic language where the the Marianne Moore photograph returns the gaze and has this sort of like sultry, smoldering fire kind of underneath her static exterior. So I sort of read that as an interesting play on that relationship between subject and object. Hmm. That is very interesting. Uh, so that's sort of an interesting look at, um, at the work you do. I want to talk a bit about how you wound up doing this. Um, if you, did you think that this is where you would be when you started out? I don't know. Let's go back to like high school. Did you picture yourself doing this kind of thing? I didn't know I would go to grad school when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back, yeah, it makes sense. I mm-hmm. <laughs> excelled in like most classes I took. Um, I mean, I really liked English and music. Um, but I actually went to undergrad for biology initially, huh. but I noticed that most of my extracurriculars were very uh, literary, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really enjoyed writing, and as much as I enjoyed biology, I just loved writing and English more, and I thought that would sustain my interest over the course of my undergraduate degree. So I switched to English. I was involved in a lot of uh, literary scenes in Toronto and Kingston and Montreal, so I was just always around poetry and writing, and I dabbled in journalism. And then, yeah, I finished my degree and realized I hadn't actually spent that much time concentrating on my actual degree, and I wanted (laughs) to come back for some more and really, really focus on academics, so I did a master's. And again, just really, really enjoyed the work. Um... And just pretty much put one's foot in front of the other. I also look at grad school as a wonderful opportunity to live in different parts of the world or the country. Um, So I've been lucky in my studies to get a lot of Shirk scholarships. So that's funded a lot of it. Uh, What's a Shirk scholarship? um, So I got Master's Shirk. So... Um, that allowed me to go to McGill. And what is the SHRC, though? Um, oh, it's um, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. So they support graduate work in the social sciences and humanities. Mm. 
there's a master's level scholarship and then uh, the PhD level scholarship. And I've been lucky enough to obtain both. So um, financially, it sort of takes care of that. Um, but yeah, so I just, I guess I enjoyed doing my master's and I liked, you know, thinking up my own project and going out there and pursuing it and everything from the preliminary research to the editing mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, it's actually really interesting when you think about it because it's very rare in most fields that you take on these different hats, you know, it's... It, so you do the research, you do the writing, you do the editing. Mm-hmm. And in most enterprises, those jobs are divided. Right. So like one person does the research and somebody else gathers it and writes it up. Yeah. So it's actually, it's kind of interesting because you, you actually, I, in my opinion, you actually do take on different roles and different hats. So I think it is good training in that because mm-hmm. whether or not you go on in academia or not, you know, you have experience editing and writing and researching you know, you know how to use databases and mm-hmm. a library. Also, there's a lot of um, extra curricular stuff. For example, the organization of conferences, which I've always tried to be involved in, um, and bringing together scholars, to <laughs> and, and, and but actually just literally creating the time and a place where these people will meet, right? which is a lot of logistical work, um, which I weirdly like as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, let's go back a little bit. You were talking about being involved in literary circles in the, um, in the cities that you lived in. Maybe you can tell us where you did your undergrad, and then you mentioned where you did your master's, and sort of how, the, um, how being involved in those literary circles um, contributed to, uh, I guess, your undergrad experience and your master's experience. Um, yes, yeah, so I did my undergraduate degree at Queen's University in Kingston, and I was also involved in the creative writing community. I took creative writing classes with Carolyn Smart, and we, in our advanced creative writing class, put together an anthology. Um, Carolyn also often curated readings and also initiated a writers in residence. Uh, a writer in residency, so we were often bringing in writers from out of town and putting on events. Mm-hmm. Um, we also put on a couple of festivals, like a dub poetry festival. So I actually just had this wonderful opportunity to meet writers in Canada, um, hang out with them in a fairly <laughs> chill and intimate scenario, mm-hmm. you know, just at the grad club brainstorming events for our festival, and then doing stuff like catering and booking locations alongside them and also having them come into our creative writing classes and edit our work so that that was happening in tandem with um my degree as well as working at the newspaper or i worked um for the queen's feminist review oh yeah so um that was a publication feminist minded that uh, had a lot of visual uh that we invited submissions um, that showcased visual art and literary art. There are just a lot of events going on. Um, students were reading alongside professionals, so that was a really, really fun scene. And then I moved to Montreal to do my master's. And, yeah, Montreal has a fairly vibrant literary scene and... Um, 
it's a, it's a big city, but the Anglo community isn't enormous, so mm. the writing scene is pretty close knit. So mm-hmm. it's very easy to find out about poetry readings. And Concordia has a creative writing program. McGill does not, oh. <laughs> um, but there there is some overlap amongst the people studying. One of my good friends who studied at McGill, you know, is now kind of making her way as a poet. So um, English departments aren't always home to creative types, but sometimes they are. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's that really interests me. Um, you know, just because somebody studies poetry and studies literature doesn't mean that they're actually producing stuff. Uh, do you produce uh, any poetry? I, I, I do. Mm-hmm. I used to a lot more. I actually find the more I study poetry, the less I produce, hmm. which I think is a very interesting conundrum. Um, and I know it sounds very paradoxical or hypocritical for people to study something and yet not have any intimate knowledge of producing it. Um, on the other hand, I think it's it's good to be humble and acknowledge that these are just different forms of knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, I feel like a lot of the work I do, at least academically, it, it's literary cris- criticism, but it's also, it's also history mm-hmm. and it's sort of understanding the narratives and threads that have um, happened in the poetry world and trying to um, figure out, yeah, who was doing what and why and what kind of knowledge did they produce and what kind of knowledge am I producing, which I think is a very different thing from creative writing. Um, I do enjoy writing itself, which is partially why I got into academia was like I just liked writing and this was a job that paid me to write Mm -hmm. and I thought of the academic paper or academic writing as a new genre to try and tackle and like can I write intelligent things that are also kind of clear and eloquent (laughs) and that's usually my goal often you know at the expense of the argument perhaps but (laughs) So, but I think a lot of people who study poetry are secret poets or used to be poets. And there's something devastating about loving something so much and like living with it and devoting your life to it and yet ultimately failing at it. (laughs) That's pretty bleak. (laughs) (laughs) And it is. I, I don't like, I mean it to be bleak, but I don't. But I come across a lot of, yeah, English profs are like, yeah, like I was a poet. You're like, oh man. <laughs> is there um, is there anything in mind that you have? Like, what do you want to contribute? I guess to your field, is there some sort of overarching idea or goal there? Or are you just sort of just doing your work without thinking about that? I guess. Um, I think when I was younger, I had perhaps more of a political agenda. Mm-hmm. Um. I kind of have, like, a secret feminist agenda in that the work I produce is actually not always that explicitly feminist. Like, I don't actually do feminist readings of things. I'm fairly, like, conservative in a lot of my my uh, research ways and disciplinary ways. For example, I am very, like, into historical readings and, mm-hmm. and um, close reading, formal reading, which is where you look at the features of the text very closely, um but not necessarily for political ends. Um, but my like secret agendas, I, I do prefer to study women writers and not because, not because I think women innately write 
the same or not, you know, in this kind of weird, like, second wave essentialist mm-hmm. way, but just, like, as a secret agenda where I'm like, there will always be people studying the dudes. Like, they just, they always will be there, those people. So, I don't know, I try to suss out people who are good, but perhaps not as much uh, attention has been paid mm-hmm. to them. And I like thinking of sort of, like, these genealogies of women poets who may or may not have liked each other, but, you know, I kind of can draw lines um, extending from them to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, When you talked about sort of the nature of what you study and the various aspects of it, there's a lot it's, there's a lot more to it, I guess. Uh, full disclosure is that I, we are actually friends. So, <laughs> I mean, I've asked you before what you study, but I've gotten like a, a couple sentences. It's not just sitting at the university and studying poetry. You're talking about things like um, about being involved in literary scenes and organizing conferences and things that you don't necessarily associate with somebody who's just doing research or writing papers and things like that. Um, do you, is that just um, a reflection of your own varied interests, or is that sort of typical of somebody who is at your level right now? I think I'm actually an anomaly hmm. as an academic, because I feel more like a Jill of all trades, master of none, and hmm. I've just always been someone with a lot of different projects on the go, and I feel like I've carried that into my academic life. And I think actually um, a lot of academics, like professors, um, the nature of the job is actually not that solitary. They are running committees, they are on graduate committees, they are on admission committees, so it actually (laughs) is a fairly social job. but grad school isn't always that way. There are, there are some committees and stuff like that along the way. But I think I have always had this very uh, social interest. I like when people come together to share their knowledge. Um, I benefit from I think it's also how I learn. Like, I, I do like seminars, attending seminars and seminar discussion and presentations and conferences and symposia and colloquia because... I get sick of my own thinking and my own research, or I hit walls, and or I get uninspired with like this line of inquiry. Mm. Um, and I, for me, find uh, the magic for me happens when I talk to other people or even saying my ideas out loud. Um, so I know I benefit from these gatherings, whether it be creative or academic. Um, so I often have a hand in making those happen. <laughs> also, I think because my undergraduate experience was very, was incredibly varied. So I did my degree, but I was also working on yeah this feminist publication. I worked for the newspaper. I was working for a sexual health resource center. So I got a lot of organizational experience mm-hmm. and kind of like really addicted <laughs> to having like all these things on the go. I'm more productive and I have more projects. So I sort of carried that into my academic life. And I actually, you know, am a fairly, like, involved person as an academic, and it still, like, pales in comparison <laughs> to what I was able to do when I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in 20. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my experience um, of academics is people, no, people are organizationally deft and socially interested. That's not the stereotype, but it does happen. You know, I have friends mm-hmm. who have started online uh, academic journals to review Canadian poetry. So I, I, you do see these projects pop up um, every once in a while. So I don't mean to suggest that academics are disinterested and solitary, because that is the stereotype. But it is is the stereotype for a reason. Mm-hmm. But I think 
um, people, I don't know if they get bored or just are desirous of these uh, more communal projects, and so they tend to pop up every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Um, And as far as being involved in literary scenes, um, the reason I study poetry is because I love it. So (laughs) um, I was, you know, always attending festivals and readings and, you know, reading what my peers and what contemporary Canadian poets were producing. So that just, you know, it's always been an interest. So to pursue poetry, uh, to pursue studying poetry at the graduate level, like, is just another extension of that. Mm -hmm. So I, I find it, I would find it weird to have people studying 20th century American poetry not have any interest in what's going on (laughs) right now. Um, You're talking about the the split between the creative writing department and the English department here, which um, I guess I've been to colleges but no other universities. Um, And so to me, it's sort of what I was used to, you know, the English and creative writing mm-hmm. departments being separate. Although I know a lot of people who do um, both creative writing or professional writing classes as well, uh, but while they're an English major. Um, why do you think it is so separate here at UVic? And um, I am not entirely sure. Um, I've heard the story that a long time ago there was a falling out um, between English and creative writing, hmm. probably over something I, I don't know. This sounds like a Greek myth or something. Yeah, but like that's the myth. The myth is like the circulating myth is there was some falling out decades ago, hmm. um, and you know creative writing moved across outside of the ring road, and you know <laughs> English stayed and dusty, musty Clarehue, <laughs> and they just never met again. So. I mean, I mean, it makes sense. They're very different practices mm-hmm. um, in some ways, but it, got, it was very different from my experience in undergrad. Queens didn't have a creative writing degree, but they had creative writing classes that were housed under English. Um, so, you know, there, there was a lot of, of interaction uh, between the people writing creatively and and the English department, even just the English department hosting and supporting and, you know, providing the wine and the cheese for the readings, you know? Um, And being sort of, like, proud of this little hub of creative writing that was going on. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Um, And Carolyn Smart, who was the instructor and director of that program at Queen's, being absolutely instrumental in starting a writer and residency program, bringing people in. So... Uh, maybe because it was, like, smaller in this, like, tiny little, like, ember of creative <laughs> writing. And this, you know, it was sort of, like, respected, and but also integrated. Um, so, yeah, my understanding, there was some sort of rift a long time ago. Um, but l- last year, actually, I organized a graduate research symposium for the English students. So, basically, like, a mini uh, full-day conference where people gave... Uh, presentations on their work, conference style, so in panels and with question periods and with, you know, lunch. And then afterwards, we had a wine and cheese, and I invited the MFA students to come do a reading because I thought it was ridiculous that we had never interacted Mm -hmm. and never met, and there was no (laughs) institutional, you know, intersection ever going on. Um, I also thought it was ridiculous that Ubit English never has wine and cheeses, so I organized one because... (laughs) 
I think <laughs> that's what you do. <laughs> so were they successful? Did you get good response from the fine was, arts students? Yeah, no, it was a great, great day. And like, the, I mean, like the icing on the cake was the wine and cheese and reading. So mm-hmm. you know, we had spent our day just like yakking about all of our you know very specific <laughs> topics yeah <laughs> and then everyone was just like exhausted and we just like sat down and drank some wine and we had four mfa students give a reading um which is just like kind of like the perfect amount yeah and i think one of them had a book coming out even so it was like a nice sort of you know promotional thing for her mm-hmm. um and we also got to meet you know these these creative kids hanging out um, so that for me was like a really nice moment and I don't think it's happened since I like dreams of doing that again, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, we should clarify since it is beyond the jargon, MFA is master of fine arts. Is yes. That right? yes. So where are you right now in your PhD? How many years in total are you expecting to work on this and where are you in that? So I'm coming to the end of my second year of my PhD. Mm-hmm. In which, as I talked about earlier, I write exams this year Mm -hmm. uh, to obtain my candidacy to to prove my uh, knowledge of the field I'm in. Um, And then after that, I write a dissertation proposal. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I write the dissertation. Um, So... Ideally, I would like the PhD to take four years in total. Mm-hmm. Um, often, it takes people more. Mm-hmm. Um, but my goal is to spend next year teaching and working on the dissertation, and then my fourth year finishing the dissertation. Knock on wood. Right. That, that is the plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you been doing much teaching so far while you've been doing this? Yes, I TA in my first year at UVic, and this year, um, because I received uh, the the Shirk scholarship, um, that meant I didn't have to TA, Mm. so I didn't miss it, and again, I like the the social aspect of teaching, um, and it's nice to get away from your own research, and also it's it's nice hanging out with undergrads and talking to them about stuff maybe they're encountering for the first time. Mm Um, that must be kind of interesting to sort of, you know, you get to a certain level. I think with anything, you get to a certain level and you forget what it's like for beginners. But when you go back and you see a beginner working through that stuff, it sort of renews your perspective on what it is that you're doing, whatever it is, you know. Um, is that refreshing for you? Oh, totally. And it's also, it's it's actually, it for me, actually makes the work more n- nuanced because mm-hmm. there are a lot of assumptions you make. You know, even if you're teaching Shakespeare, there are a lot of just assumptions where you're like, yeah, this is about that, this is about that. And yeah, you want want to communicate that, but it's also, you know, watching other people work through it for the first time sort of brings you back Mm -hmm. to approaching it with new eyes. Um, And also just getting better at how to talk about it and how to explain it, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and how to teach it in um, sophisticated yet accessible ways. And finding out, like, oh, like, starting with genre did not work. <laughs> or, you know, or, maybe, like, or no, we have to start with language. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like teaching. And then this year, even though I wasn't teaching, I was invited to do a couple of guest lectures for an upper-level poetry class um, because a couple of the poets 
the professor uh, was teaching are sort of grouped, are, are kind of my poets, or I've spent a lot of time mm-hmm. thinking about them. So I stepped in and gave a couple lectures, which was really fun, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, is it interesting, or is it difficult to drop into a class that's already been going that you're not really connected with and just give a guest lecture? Um, what's difficult about it, I found, was the preparation, because I hadn't been with the class, so I didn't have a relationship to the students. I hadn't been following along with the trajectory of the class. I didn't know what the thesis of the class was, if there were specific um, you know, threads that the professor was pursuing, or I didn't know what the students would respond to. So the preparation was a little nebulous, because I didn't know what to expect. Um, the actual execution was fine. Maybe they're just very friendly, very chill students. So <laughs> they took to me kindly, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, I think part of teaching is you can prepare all you want, but a lot of it is about being very present and attentive when you do teach. Mm-hmm. So you have all this information that you've prepared, but it's really about, like, you know, giving it to them and then making sure they can do something with it. And then it becomes like a dialogue back and forth and you wind up just having good conversations, ideally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so next year when you teach, are you going to, do you develop your own uh, courses uh, or are you sort of stepping into already established classes? I'm Yes, I'll be stepping into the established English 135, which is essentially a academic writing skills course Mm -hmm. so that will be interesting in that the focus of that is less on literature and more on teaching people how to write academically Hmm. um which i think is a good skill to have to (laughs) it's a good skill to be able to write academically but also it's it's a good skill to be able to teach those skills um because i think often academics at least my experience of english essay writing is we were very rarely instructed how to write essays. Mm-hmm. You're just sort of thrown in and the people who did well were just the ones who could pick up subtext and absorb the information and kind of figure it out and how to make the arguments on their own. And then I think there are lots of people who could excel at academic writing if we actually just broke down the building blocks and laid bare the rules and regulations instead of <laughs> leaving it to uh, osmosis. Right. And just hoping that they sort of intuit what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so I think that will be a good skill for me to be able to break down what it is I do when I write and explain it to other people. Mm-hmm. It looks like we're just about out of time. In fact, we are out of time. So I want to thank you for uh, joining me today to be on the program. Thank you very much, Adele. Thanks, Liz.